Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Oh, most merciful Father, we come before you with a cry asking that you would help us this very morning. Give us understanding, not according to the wisdom of the world, but according to your wisdom which is found in your word. Lord, let our plea come before you as well. Deliver us according to the promises found in your word. Lord, let our lips spring forth praise as you teach us your word. Let us let our tongues sing forth your praise according to your word. For we know your word is right and true. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hear now the word Lord from Psalm 23. This is God's holy and errant infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths For His name's sake, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely Your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. We love a good story. We love a good story with a great finish and a climax where once something that was once broken is now restored. A relationship. Of a broken family once broken, now mended. But even we love the visual image of that of restoration. Turn to HGTV channel station and you just see these TV shows that are filled with these renovations and restorations. Taking something which is not what it used to be and making it grander, splendor, more splendor. We love to hear those stories of what was once was broken is now made new. We love to hear those testimonies of those people's lives who were in the shadows. Towards the end, they could go no further down. And yet, something happens, a light within their heart is ignited and their life is turned around. We love to, to, to live this story, to see this story. But what we often like is the before and the after picture. We like it condensed to an hour or 45 minutes in a TV show. We like the story to be short and brief. We love the proposal of restoration and what it could become and the, the finished product of restoration and what it is. 
However, most of the time, we don't like the process of restoration. Although almost every time I started a restoration product when I was a carpenter, I'd warn people about the dust and the noise and the inconvenience it will be. did a project one time and had to take off the back of a house and they lost their kitchen. They were going to get a new kitchen eventually. But they had to move their kitchen to a bathroom. They converted one of their second bathrooms. to. They had a sink there. So they, for three, four, five, six months, they lived, their kitchen was in this bathroom. This glorious product of, look at what we're going to have, but this process for the restoration was never a joyous thing. You'd start the project and they'd get all excited about the demolition. They'd get all excited about what is going to happen, but then soon the stages of grief of restoration would set in. they'd start to begin to understand the actual process which they needed to go through. Not merely just taking out this old sink and putting in a new one. But fixing everything that you never will ever see. The pipes, the structural lumber, the subfloor, the electrical. And for the client, this was one of the longest processes and periods. But then again, this as it and the excitement would once build, once they start to see what was installed that they chose out, the tiles, the lights, the colors. And today in this psalm we read of a glorious statement that I think we love the idea of. It sounds beautiful, but once we actually start to consider what this work actually is, that when you're in that middle portion, the dread, the feeling of the longest time. But then, once we're finished, we find ourselves in an amazing period of amazement. The line I speak of is that line that he says, He restores my soul. In English, only four letters, four words long. In Hebrew, it's only two. But first, before we begin with this amazing statement, we must begin with the understanding that our souls need restoration. You can only restore something that needs to be restored. No one buys a newly constructed house and says, oh, this is a fixer-upper. You go to a car dealer on a lot, and you, you buy this car, and you say, this, this one needs some work. The definition of something that needs to be restored means that it's not what it once was. The house wasn't built as it should have been. Or it's been neglected over a period of time. The car that has rust in it needs restoration, not the one without any rust. And the simple definition of something that needs to be restored would be to bring back to its original condition. And with this statement, when we say He restores our soul, we understand that our souls are not in the original condition in which they should be. And this Hebrew verb which is used has this great sense, this wide-ranging sense of understanding. In your Bibles, it's going to be translated many different ways. But you can see how they're all connected. To return, to turn back, to repent 
backwards. Or just even, again, to repent. But you can see how all of these are, are similar to that understanding to restore back to its original condition. There's something that is happening that they need to go back. Something is not right. That original condition, there's this turning, this change of direction. This is the first thing that we need to understand as we read this line in this psalm to, to, that we have a need for restoration. We notice something about our souls that is not quite right. It was once somewhere else, and now we're going back to where it is. And when we think about this shepherd theme in this passage, the restoration of this soul might seem strange. Again, this comes back to our understanding of how we read the Bible. This is a poem, though it's more than a poem, it's written in poetic language. If we were to read this literally, we'd come to this verse and say, well, sheep must have souls. Which I don't, do not believe they do. But again, if we understand this as poetic imagery, that we as people are sheep, and the Lord is our shepherd, and our souls need restoration. That we need our souls to be brought back to that original condition. Again, Ezekiel 34 is helpful to understand. Ezekiel 34, as we looked at last week, is this, this period in the time where the religious leaders, the leaders of Israel, are, are meant to be the shepherd of the flock, but they're not. They're not good shepherds. They care only about themselves rather than about their sheep. What the sheep can do for them. we learn from two verses, three verses, what type of shepherds they are. That they feed themselves. They should be feeding the sheep, but they feed themselves. They eat the fat. They clothe yourself with wool. They slaughter the fat ones. They do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled over them. That these terrible shepherds do not restore the sheep. They are weak, sick, injured, strayed, and lost. They're not in their original condition. There's something different about these sheep than what they should be. But these terrible shepherds do not restore them. They do not bring them back. If we were to translate from the Hebrew of 34... The same terminology that's found in that Hebrew um, Ezekiel 34 passage in this Psalm 23, this line would read, The strayed you have not restored. That these sheep are outside of what they should be and where they should be. That they once were strong, but fit and healthy and not lost. But in the end, they all become scattered sheep. However, this is the glorious part of this psalm, is that we do not have terrible shepherds. The psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd. That He does restore His sheep. Again, Ezekiel 34 verse 16 speaks of the terrible shepherds of the people of Israel, but then God explaining that He will become their shepherd. 
that God says that He will seek the lost. He will bring back the straight. He will bind up the injured. He will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Again, the psalmist captures this in those two Hebrew words, the four in English. He restores my soul. Again, if you were to take Ezekiel 34 and try and translate the Hebrew of Psalm 23, I will restore the straight. Even up to this point, we can see the connection, can't we? To Christ. Our minds are clicking and we see, and even in these four words, we can see Christ in this psalm, can we not? As Luke 15 explains that much-beloved parable of the lost sheep. What man of you, Jesus explains, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Glorious thing, don't we see that Christ is the one that goes and gathers and collects all the sheep who have wandered and who have gone astray. He restores those sheep. And I think what we remember from this parable often is we focus on that one sheep who wanders and the shepherd who follows him or them to be able to find them. And if we think of this simply as a lost sheep being found, I think we really miss the, the, the emphasis of Psalm 23. It's not only that he finds the lost sheep, but the lost sheep is no longer lost. The lost sheep becomes the restored sheep. The sheep is not only found, but the lost sheep is restored to its original condition. And what is that original condition? Back with the shepherd, with the flock. That apart from the shepherd, apart from the flock and close to the shepherd. But... To take it even further, Jesus explains the main point of this parable. In verse 6, He says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But even Jesus ties this theme of restoration, repentance, turning back. The restoration in this parable comes through repentance. And some translations even translate this such as Martin Luther did in Psalm 23. He hath converted my soul. The restoration comes through repentance. Restoration begins with the need that we are sinners who need to repent. We wander from God in His ways. And He brings us back. Through repentance. With this in mind, listen to Psalm 51, that famous psalm David wrote 
after the incident with Uriah, the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, says in verse 10 to 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. He notices he needs restoration. He is a sinner. Creating me a clean heart. My heart is filthy. My heart is dirty. It's filled with sin. Renew a right spirit within me. Bringing back, restoring. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Confession, um, our assurance of pardon this morning came from Isaiah 53. He explains, we are sheep. And what does a sheep do? We've gone astray. We're led by his or her own way. We're turned. To understand this line of the psalm, we need to begin to understand that we need Restoration that a terrible shepherd will not give it to us. It will use us in our weakness. But the good shepherd sees that we are not what we need to be or where we once were in our original condition. And he restores us. But that brings us to our second point, the resentment of restoration. That if we are like sheep who have gone astray, we're all sinners who need to repent. Now this is, becomes the place where we all say, I know I'm a sinner. You don't need to tell me. It doesn't take long for you to see the sin which comes from my body. You don't know the thoughts of my heart. However, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we do not know the depth of our sin. And therefore, we don't know how much restoration we actually need. And almost every single time I would begin a bathroom renovation, it looks fine, the bathtub is there. You might feel a little bit of soft spots in the floor. But I would always tell my clients, you just wait until we open up the walls, and then we'll know to the extent of what we have to replace. What looks outwardly okay, I would always tell them, you never know what's underneath. And most, almost always, I would have to replace all the structural beams that hold up the bathtub. Surprising how much it can be held together. And we think that we have sin in our lives and we have the small bits of sin. We're not that bad. I lose my cool occasionally. Okay, I, I could be more loving. I could be a little bit more generous with my time, my talents, my treasures. I know I have a little way to go by loving Christ as Christ, uh, my wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, the list could go on. And, and if we were to rank ourselves in all of them, I think that we'd give ourselves a higher number than we actually see. 
But when we realize how far we have strayed or how far we have wandered, not from the standard of the world, but from what God has commanded us in our word, His Word, we find ourselves with that statement that I am a sinner far deeper. We find ourselves more broken than what our kids call the project I'm working on, the broken house. That's a broken house. I recently read a snippet in our men's fellowship lunch, uh, breakfast from Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis that I think really summarizes this point of this resentment of restoration. He puts it this way. Imagine yourself living as a house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what He is doing. He's getting the drains right and the, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs need doing, and you're not surprised. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is He up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. We all cry out, we all understand, we need restoration. We are sinners. But I think we don't understand the extent of that restoration we need. Christianity is not merely a facelift. It's not merely just small changes to your life. Often we think of Christianity as just a a paint job. But if we think this way, that we're actually like the 99... Sinners that don't need to repent because they think of themselves as righteous. Again, this poetic line that we find in this psalm, that He restores my soul, we rejoice in. But when reality sinks in of what this actually means, we realize that it's not only that we lose our cool, But deep within us is hate and resentment. That sin is crouching at our door. That we are murdering our brothers and our sisters within our hearts filled with hate. We realize that there is no band-aid that fixes that. It is a deep and invasive heart surgery. This surgery is like this spreading disease that constantly is spreading and growing within our bodies. We all cry out, of course I need a Savior, I'm a sinner. But I don't think we understand how much sin we actually commit. C.S. Lewis in another book called The Great Divorce has a scene which is called The Little Red Lizard. 
in this scene, there's a bus that travels from hell, and they're going on this, and there's tour guides. And they come to the foothills of heaven, and upon the shoulder of one of the people there was this little red lizard. This is sin. This lizard would whisper into this person's ear as they were talking about heaven. And this conversation begins this person on the bus and this lizard on his shoulder and this heavenly man. And this heavenly man offers all of his help to be able to get rid of this little red lizard. However, in the end, the man is unwilling to part with this little red lizard. He says things like, oh, don't worry, I can get this lizard under control. He's just a little noisy sometimes. Oh, don't worry, he, look, he's going to sleep. He's not hurting anyone right now. And often he downplays the effect on the lizard that it has on him. And during this conversation, the man with the lizard exclaims, Well, I think it's over. You said very carefully, I honestly will. In fact, I will let you know, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling rightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for this operation. Some other day, maybe, perhaps. The heavenly man very bluntly turns to him and says, There is no other day. All days are present now. The man with the lizard screams, Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did it. It is not so. Why, why, why you're hurting me now? The heavenly man turns around and says, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. And often this is how we are with our sin. We do not know the depths of our sin, but often we do not want to part with our sin either. We don't want to go through the work of that restoration, which is often painful. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 explains that discipline is painful for a time. There's no denying it. It's easier just to leave everything as it is than to have that invasive heart surgery. And often we run and flee from it. We're happy to be lost sheep. We're happy on our own. We can find our own grass. But we don't understand the depths of that psalm. When the Lord is our shepherd, He restores our soul. But the final thing is the completed restoration. In all of this, what a depressing time that we've had so far. We actually see great hope. As you hear of your sin, the depths of your sin, the, the extent of restoration that needs to go on in your life. Before today, we're all happy thinking that we just need a coat of paint. But now you're explaining that I need a whole gut job. How can you then say, Hope. How can you say there is hope? You're Christian. Look in your Bibles to the first of that line. That first 
two-letter word to this four-word sentence. He restores my soul. Notice that the wandering sheep does not even know it wanders. Notice how that he is lost. And lost means that you do not know how to go back home. That a lost sheep is indeed lost, truly lost. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Peter words it in 1 Peter chapter 2. That He Himself bore our sins in His body on a tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But he is the one that does the work of restoration. He is the one who bears our sin. He is the one that was wounded. Though we are the ones who live to righteousness as we have been healed. That we are returned because of what He has done. We are restored because of His deeds. We have great hope. For He is the one that starts the project. He is the one that works the project. He is the one that finishes the project. Paul writes in Philippians, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you is willing, will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul at this point is not sure if he is going to live or die. Yet he is able to say something. He doesn't know what tomorrow brings, but he's, he knows something for sure, certain in this time that God will complete what he has begun. Virgin puts it this way, When our soul grows sorrowful, He revives it. When it is sinful, He sanctifies it. When it is weak, He strengthens it. He does it. His ministers could not do it if He could not did it, did it not. His Word would not avail by itself. He restoreth my soul. Are any of us low in grace? Do we feel that our spirituality is the lowest ebb? He turns the ebb into the flood and soon restores your soul. Pray to Him. Then, for the blessing, restore Thou me, Thou shepherd of my soul. The glorious thing of this project is that we merely just need to understand that we need the restoration. And we just pray that God would do it. That God would restore us. And we look forward to that point and that time in our end of our lives when we behold God in all of His glory and all of His splendor and we look at our restored selves because of what He has done, the work which He started and has brought to completion. And we rejoice that though there is pain today in our restoration as we go through this work of restoration and repentance unto life, that He is the one that gets all the glory. 
the great hymn, Come Thou Fount, has this great sand that sums up this line that He restores my soul. That Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood. The Good Shepherd lays down the life for His sheep. He restores our souls with His precious blood. Then, we can finally understand why we joyously say, the Lord is my shepherd, and He restores my soul. Actually, the author of Hebrews doesn't call Jesus the good shepherd. He actually calls Him the great shepherd. When you see how sinful you are in the work of restoration, you understand why he is a great shepherd. I'll finish with the author of Hebrews as he puts it in chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O gracious and most merciful Father, what a joy and an honor it is to be able to read this psalm. Lord, as our hearts are provoked, as we see and are convicted of our sin, Lord, let us not think that we shall only do better. But let us look to Christ, the one who began this good work, who is doing this good work, and who will complete this good work. The great shepherd who restores our soul. Help us to see of our sin, but more importantly, Lord, help us to turn to Christ. Let us hand over the key. Let Him do this good work within us. Let us have this invasive heart surgery day in and day out. We would become more like You as our souls are restored to Him. We pray this in Jesus Christ, our great shepherd of the sheep's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.